0: This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at Heritage Radio Network. Our Executive Director and my co-host is out today, Katie Mosman-Wadler, feeling a little under the weather. So um, today I am joined by Hannah Forden, our Membership Coordinator. Happy Thursday. Hello. Sam Lee, our intern. Hi. And our new Julia Child Fellow, Sarah Strong. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. And as always, shout out to David Tattashore for making us all sound good in the booth. Hi. Hey, David. <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I we're, just wanted to be like everybody else. Yeah. Hey. hey. <laughs> <laughs> we're super psyched to have today's guest, Julia Bainbridge and John DeBerry with us. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> really, you really fit in well. Um, Julia was most recently the food editor of Atlanta Magazine and is an accomplished writer with work and everything from from Bon Appetit to Playboy. John is one of the biggest cocktail and bar experts out there. He got his start at PDT and is now working on writing his debut book and creating a nonprofit that will improve the daily lives of professional restaurant workers. Just killing it, both of you guys. Good job. We're going to chat more with Julie and John later, but first we... Um, Oh, and we also have a very special game to play at the end of the show. If you listened to the last time John was on, you may know where we're going with this. Stay tuned, it's gonna get weird and great. Um, But first, let's get into the week's headlines.
3: So on Andrew Talks to Chefs, uh, Chef Charlie Palmer sat down with Andrew at the top of the Archer Hotel in Midtown Manhattan to talk about his life and career from the River Cafe to Oriole and his collection of restaurants from coast to coast.
2: Food Without Borders welcomed Azerbaijan-born food entrepreneur and recipe developer Uli Nazabova. Uli chatted with Sari Kamen about leaving the world of finance to pursue her passion making gelato by starting her own business, Gelateria Uli in Los Angeles. On Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway spoke to John
0: Kaufman, who is the author of Hippie Food, and they talked about how food got political, why Paul Bragg was the original Gwyneth Paltrow, and what relics of hippie food we're still eating today.
3: Hashtag nutritional yeast. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this week, the ladies of recommended reading uh, with Food Book Fair welcomed uh, Gloria Adim, who is a friend of mine and is amazing. And she is the founder of Well Read Black Girl, which is an incredible book club and festival. And everyone should go follow her on social media because she's like killing it in every possible way right now. Uh, They chatted about the pleasure and magic of book clubs um, and hashtag Well Read Black Girl book selfies and so much more. And on Beer
0: Sessions Radio, Jimmy got everyone excited uh, for 2018 NYC Beer Week uh, with his Beer Week preview, and he had guests from Beer Street, The Well, Transmitter, and Threes Brewing.
2: That's just a hey, taste. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey Jimmy.
0: Hey, hey,
2: hey. That's just a taste of this week's content. You can listen to all 35 of our weekly shows at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, So now we're on to events and speaking of beer week, it kicks off this Saturday evening, February 24th with an opening bash at the Brooklyn Expo Center. There are all sorts of amazing events throughout the week. So be sure to check out the schedule at nycbrewed.com.
0: And if you are thinking about going to the Beer Week Opening Bash uh, and you're a Foment About It fan. Foment About It. ferment About It. Uh, you should go to the Brooklyn Expo Center early on Saturday because uh, they will be having Fermentation Fest um, from 10 to 4. And so you can go see Chris and Mary from the show there. Um, and they'll have all sorts of fermented goods from over 40 exhibitors. They'll have seminars, beers, a mini mead festival. Kimchi making, sauerkraut making, and music from the Home Bruisicians, and so many other things. So um, you can get tickets and info at NYCFirmFest.squarespace.com.
2: Home Bruisicians, that's interesting. <laughs> All right, a uh, few more events coming up. HRN is hitting the road this this March. Catch our live coverage of Charleston Wine and Food Festival March second through fourth. Our guests will include Sean Brock. Jessica B. Harris, Jillian Zettler, who's the executive director of Charleston Wine and Food, and many, many more. We're also going to have, this is very exciting, a honky-tonk performance by Dale Watson of Austin, Texas on Friday at 3 p.m. So tune in at heritageradionetwork.org listen to catch all of the action March 2nd through 4th.
3: And Charleston's not even the only place you can catch HRN in the wild this month. Um, Dana Cowan is going to be interviewing Martha Hoover at South by Southwest for a very special episode of Speaking Broadly, and that's going to be on Monday, March 12th in Austin.
2: And the next day on March 13th, Snacky Tunes Live is taking place at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles. The evening will feature an interview and intimate performance by soul singer-songwriter Nia, Nia interview and food from Chef Michael Wexler and Michael Cassar of Wexler's Deli, and a DJ set from Them Jeans. Tickets for that show are $30 and include a plate of food. You can find more info about both the South by Southwest and Snacky Tunes live events and links to tickets at heritageradionetwork.org slash events.
3: And right here in Brooklyn, we have another amazing event coming up on March 22nd. Uh, We're hosting an event called So You Think You Know Mezcal, an educational tasting. It's going to be at our office at 100 Bogart uh, from 630 to 8 p.m. And it's being hosted by Sacred, which is an incredible group. Um, and it stands for Saving Agave for Agriculture, rec- Recreation, Education, and Development. So there's a lot to learn, a lot to taste. You can uh, buy tickets now at our Facebook page, or you can search it on Eventbrite.
2: Yes, you can. John DeBerry, you should be there. I'm there. It's very cool. Um, all right. So, Julia, John, welcome again. We're very excited to have you guys. I want to start out by just saying it's a momentous moment that you guys are meeting IRL.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's our first meeting. Finally. I'm not- <laughs> I'm not really sure where we like initially made contact. Get you know? started
2: in the DMs. I think it
4: might have been a DM situation, like a DM slide, maybe like circa 2016. And then there
5: was a sharing of book recommendations and skincare routines. Yeah. And here we I'm are. I'm like, who's
4: this platinum blonde woman who I can like talk to on the internet? It seems really cool. <laughs> <No> <laughs> we have to be friends. Blonde. I've
2: left the club, <laughs> Once a blonde, always a blonde and true your heart. True. Um, So, Julia, you just wrapped up a little over a year as the food editor for Atlanta Magazine. You've been, uh, you're in the middle, or in a stint in Atlanta right now, but you're originally from New York City. Yeah. Um, And when introducing you as Atlanta Mag's new food editor, the executive editor, Steve Fennessy, wrote that what struck him most about you was your relentless curiosity and the recognition the best food writing tells us as much about who we are as a city as it does about where we should go out to eat. So what did you learn about the city of Atlanta after writing about it for a year or more?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a very kind thing for him to say, (laughs) first of all. Um, I mean, it's true that in my writing anyway, I've always been less interested in food for food's sake and more interested in using it as a lens through which to look at other things. And I got into food through travel as a child and then through studying cultural anthropology uh, in college where we use food to talk about culture and identity and ethnicity Um, more and more voices are entering that space, writing about people by focusing on their foodways, and we're getting to understand how a more diverse group of people eat and live. Um, Despite that, there's still a relatively small percentage of uh, chefs of color on best of lists um, being nominated for awards or owning their own restaurants, and this is something we're talking about across the country, but it feels particularly jarring in Atlanta, um, where I see it too, because it's a city that's often referred to as a black Mecca. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tried to shine a light on some of those people because they are there, like Brian Furman at Bee's Cracklin Barbecue in Atlanta, Todd Richards, who's about to come out with his first cookbook. Um, I assigned the great Adrian Miller a profile on Todd Richards that should appear in the April issue of Atlanta Magazine, so check that out. Um, Erica Council, she makes the best biscuits in town uh, and serves them both at breakfast pop-ups with Brian and other Sundays. Uh, with Brian, yeah, Brian Furman, Beast Cracklin, sorry, um, and as well as her Sunday soul food suppers. Um, so that's a lot of stuff I've discovered in Atlanta so far, and I'm still getting to know. It, honestly, a year's not really a long time. Um, there's Buford Highway, about 30 minutes from my house in the center of town, where you can find Mexican taquerias and seafood houses, regional Chinese cuisines, Vietnamese, Malaysian, Filipino food. Like, there's so much. I think people don't think of Atlanta that way um, and there's like a lot of for lack of a better word ethnic you mm-hmm. know cuisines international cuisines you can find there I probably spend most of my time in Duluth um, where much of Atlanta's Korean population lives there is so much there um, Bill Addison the national critic for Eater says it's second only to Los Angeles Korea Koreatown
2: wow so. oh. I think that's true though I also was very when I was living there very obsessed with Beaufort Highways farmer's market yes because it's like to me, the greatest grocery store that exists. Yes. Durian, pig's feet, anything you could want. Fresh tortillas. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's like the, it's, it is a mecca of like food shopping. Um, and Georgia's an agrarian state.
5: There's yeah. Like lots of farmland around, lots of urban farmers, lots of urban farmers of color in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting place.
2: Um, you also have a very, very cool apartment in Atlanta, which for New Yorkers, like if you were recently like, profiled. There were some really amazing yeah. photos. It, it is crazy. It is and crazy. as someone who lives here, you're like, how tall are those ceilings? Like It's, it's unreal. But tell me a little bit about uh, the building that the apartment's in and just kind of yeah. the historic aspect of it. So it dates back to the 1920s.
5: Um, it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, I believe. Um, it's so they're called the Bass Lofts. It used to be Bass High School, um, and they turned that into into apartments. So I'm in the former auditorium, and that's why the ceilings you saw are soaring high uh, and have these like huge windows. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's very hard to leave, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm thinking of moving back to New York,
2: which like may be crazy of me. But, I don't know. Um, of, I don't know of any. Um... Auditoriums that are being carved into the lofts, but I will keep an eye out for. Yeah, them. okay, great, <laughs> Good, thank you. Um, so, switching gears, you also told us that you're exploring the idea of making a non-alcoholic cocktail book. Why is that something that you're interested in? And I'm John's Not exactly. written about it as well too. So, yeah, I'm yeah, interested yeah, for both of you.
5: Well, yeah, I had the idea a couple years ago, and then I took this job, and I, so my sort of memo kind of sat there. And I wasn't drinking alcohol then. I take chunks of time off here and there. Um, so yeah, my personal interest is like many people. I have alcoholics in my family, mom, siblings, grandparents. So it's like kind of deeply in there, and I uh, that combined with like working in the food and drink space, I have lots of opportunities to drink and, and over drink <laughs> and found myself kind of doing that sometimes, um, like abusing that perk. Um, so it came to a point where I decided to step back and cleanse and I started with one month and then sort of six months and nine months. So uh, serendipitously, like that nine month period was at a time when I'd noticed bartenders carving out more space on their menus for this category. Um, and, like, instead of finding it a bummer, like, to have to serve someone who doesn't drink, I heard from a number of them that it's exciting. Like,
4: it's actually really hard to put together an alcoholic heart. Yeah. That's good. <clears throat> Most people just throw some, like, lemon and ginger ale together and they call right. it a day. But to actually make, like, a drink that stands up, it's extremely challenging. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Well, and demands are rising from consumers, right? Like, Absolutely. a bottle of, even if it's an imported, you know, soda from Italy, it doesn't really cut it anymore. You want, like, a multiple. Con- component thoughtful Mm -hmm. drink. Um, And some people were telling me like, you know, normally with a cocktail, like there's the base spirit and you build around that. So if you remove that, um, which takes up so much flavor real estate, there's like all this room to play with.
4: Flavor real estate. That's good. (laughs) I love that. I'm using that. Okay, do.
5: Um, So yeah, I guess I think like now's the time for a book like that, where I'm, you know, getting contributions from all the people who have decided to really think about this and devote parts of their menus to it um, and serve yes, people like me who are deciding not to drink or people who, like, as the wellness movement continues to rise are just choosing not to drink because maybe they have a meeting in the morning and want to be a clear-headed or
4: whatever else I really struggle with, like, what to call them because it's, like, mocktails. Yeah, mm.
5: this is, like, no one's really found it because then there's also zero proof, but, like, that implies an absence of something and I kind of want it to be... I'm, like, toying with the idea of calling this book if it
2: happens just good drinks
4: yeah
5: <laughs>
2: all they are, are good drinks <laughs> like it's just a bunch
5: I of like drinks that that happen so this
2: is alcohol. interesting too because so john's working on a, a cocktail book mm-hmm. and this is reminding me you, the other day you were saying should i have a section of my book that's just why things taste good is that what <laughs> oh, you yeah, said
4: I why stuff is good why stuff is why good? Stuff too is much
2: good. or too little and i think that that's great because it's all about the flavor of real estate it's about why <laughs> things are good and uh, yeah what, what, what more are you thinking of doing with, like, that kind of explanatory – And what is your book?
4: Well, the book, it's it's – I'm tentatively calling it How to Make Drinks. It's sort of like a joke simplification of the process of creating cocktails that bartenders have either explicitly or, like, kind of implicitly realized over the years of creating cocktails. Another word that I hate but it's, like, really useful is, like, mixology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sort of learned to love it because it's actually a useful word in terms of like mixology is like creating a cocktail, like a recipe, and like a bartender is someone who stands behind a bar and like puts drinks together, and they're two different things, and you can be good at both or good at neither or one or the other. Um, oh, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
5: that
4: way. Uh, and it th- the way I see it, it's like a language, and bartenders are sort of native speakers of this language. And if you throw them, like if you look at this shelf over there, there's like a few things I could just throw together and make a drink that that probably tastes pretty good, but take someone off the street and say, hey, make a cocktail with this, they probably start crying. So it's how to teach someone that lesson mm-hmm. without having to give put them, like, years behind the bar for finding out why drinks taste good. Mm-hmm. So it's how to achieve balance, how to find out what you like. Um, and it sort of she sees, it hopes to explain to the to the, the layperson, if you will, the amateur home bartender, that, like, there are a bunch of, like, very standard structural structure drinks, like mm-hmm. the martini, the Manhattan Daiquiri, Old Fashioned, Whiskey Sour, that, like, a lot of drinks kind of, like, have, like, branched out from. And you can sort of trace the genealogy back there. And once you kind of learn this structure and, like, the syntax and the grammar and, you know, the thinking about ingredients as verbs or nouns or whatever and how to, how to throw those together and how to see the patterns in, in cocktails. You can then start to think for yourself and you're less like a, a slave to the, to the recipe. Um, I was there just there reading be
5: recipes in it. Sorry. Well there'll be a Oh
4: yeah, there'll be a lot of recipes in <laughs> okay. it, but it's, it's um, I just read Amanda, uh, Amanda Cohen's like really awesome dirt candy cookbook and it's, it's really, it's like got comics in it. It's like excellent. You should definitely check it out. And there's this whole bit about you're not the slave to the recipe and all the recipes are very like modular. They're like, you can do this if you want or if you just don't feel like it, you don't have to do it. It's very, it'll still work. Here's why this works. And here's the structure of the, of the dish. And she actually lays it out like spatially in an illustration, which is super cool. And so I'm kind of thinking about the same, same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so here's a recipe that, if you're feeling lazy on a Tuesday night, you can just throw some meat together with a few ingredients and not do too much preparation. Or if you're feeling super fancy and you want to be Martha Stewart and like impress the shit out of your friends, then here's how to do that. But you're still using the same tools and you're using the same rules, essentially, to create those drinks. It's just, depending how you feel, the effort can be like sliding scale.
2: Martha Stewart, your patron saint? Yes,
4: I'm, I'm working on becoming <laughs> Martha Stewart.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it also kind of reminds me of, like, uh, salt fat acid heat. This yeah. like yeah, kind of absolutely. new style of writing a cookbook or a cocktail book in a way that's like teaching you more the rules mm-hmm. than a recipe. That's very interesting. Um, so how's the book coming, by the way?
4: It's a little by little. Yeah. Chipping away. Uh it's a little bit distant. Like the due date is like the I it's August first technically, but I like to say the end of July, just to give myself a little bit of mm-hmm. like cushion and I'm a super procrastinator so if I don't feel any urgency I can't get anything done but I'm trying to just like trick myself into doing like 20 minutes chunks where I just like turn off turn the internet off like put my phone in the kitchen and like sit and it's just 20 minutes like just that that's it that's the deal and then I usually end up writing for longer because I'm like into it um, so that's been pretty helpful um, but every time I approach the book it's like I'm sort of a different person and I'm seeing it like a little differently so it's like A lot of pieces that are swirling around and then once you sort of get the whole thing out then you can look at it and say okay so what did i actually want to say here and then make everything make sense within that Mm -hmm. so it's sort of like it's still coming together for me but
2: and you you definitely like talk about the process on like social media and stuff has (laughs) it been helpful to get to, like, kind of put some ideas out there and get feedback on yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah?
4: Totally. Um, I've done, done some, like, little bits of writing here and there, too, and it's really helpful to understand, like, how an editor works. Like, I didn't understand how an editor worked a year ago. Like, I didn't realize what they did. And it's actually really nice to know that you have someone who can, like, look at your work objectively and say, okay, this is what you meant to say, or, like, this is sounds terrible, and let's just think about it this way, and let's pull out these bits of it, and, like, go fix this part of it. And so that whenever I'm writing, I think a lot of people get hung up on like, oh, this isn't the perfect thing. This, this sentence isn't the perfect sentence that I want to say. Like this sounds awkward. So I'm just going to sit there and stare at the blank screen for five minutes. I just like write the write the bad thing that you w- don't want to write just to get through it. And then your editor or your, your, you as your own editor will then go back and say, okay, so this terrible sentence like meant to convey this one thing that I only figured out how to express it two paragraphs later. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of write through all the bad writing and then, like, pick up the pieces and sort of sort it all out.
5: Mm-hmm. This is why writing is
4: the worst,
5: <laughs> <laughs> says
2: the writer.
4: <laughs> we were writer. Don't, don't do it.
2: We it were makes just you feel talking. very
4: vulnerable because you're like, oh, this is so bad. Like, I hope never, no one sees this. But then out of the five bad sentences, there's, like, three good ones. Yeah, everyone you know, goes through then, it. Yeah.
5: I'm curious if your 20 minutes are in the morning or in the night. In like the,
4: morning, the morning. I fall apart at like, Four thirty. Sorry, but but I, like my mental <laughs> capacity goes like way down until like seven p.m. and then uh-huh. I'm like, sort of back up. But but then I've had dinner and I'm just like over it. Yeah, mm. I'm like a six forty five wake up person, so mm. that's when I do a lot.
2: You're ready. We, we were talking with Julia earlier that when she's saying when she's working and writing that it helps to have like a lower ceiling. Do you have any like
4: like physically? This
2: is yeah. This is only because <laughs> all right.
5: I, I just noticed this working in this cavernous space I have you all <laughs> um, with these huge ceilings and I just like, it makes me a little uncomfy and I have to go huh. upstairs and work where the ceiling is lower. And my friend Charlotte Druckman actually writes with a hoodie on because it's the same kind of thing. Like it's oh. some kind of, I don't know, it's not containing the ideas. I don't know what I it get is. it. It's, it's like, it's like your
4: awareness is being more focused. I think if you're in a larger room, you're kind of trying to focus on more things because you're like. What, what's out, out there that can come, come at me I don't know like, you feel a little more vulnerable and exposed so you're like not as focused yeah like, totally that could
5: inside. be it I haven't totally put my finger on it but
2: it, it
4: is a truism yeah. we'll get to the bottom of it
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I wanted to come back uh, Julia a second we were talking about the non-alcoholic cocktails and things yeah. like that um, what right now are you you know drinking or have you kind of recipes you've come up with that you think are like super underrated or that more people should be trying
5: I am just getting started with my research. Um, but, I mean, I, my go-to is, like, boring. It's going to be the, you know, bitters and soda with lime. But that's because, like, at every dive bar even has those yeah. ingredients. Yeah. Um, and it's just something that, like, makes you feel a little festive. There's, like, a nice blush color to it.
2: Um, is that a Mariah
4: Carey reference? <laughs> we had no, we had okay, Kat, Kat
2: Kinsman on in <laughs> uh, January, and she was also, you know... Not not drinking alcohol, and so she was she was at the bar at Roberta's and was doing the same thing: bitters and soda, and and she she's dubbed it bits and bubs. Bits mm. and bubs, that's a good one. Yeah, um,
5: yeah. I mean, if you don't drink alcohol though, because you've like struggled with abusing it, like maybe you've been through a program and you're sober, then that's not going to work because there are trace amounts of alcohol in yeah. bitters. Um, I think like a step up from that, but something that's still pretty basic are shrubs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or like vinegar-based syrups that you mix with soda or whatever else. Um, a gurn. I don't know if I'm saying it right. What's a, that? I, a gern in Grand Central, the Klaus Meyer restaurant. Oh, yeah. Um, they're making some great ones, like Elderberry Shrubs, Concord Grape, um, and Jonas Anderson, the beverage director there, at least he was at the time when I was uh, talking with them about their N.A. program. He plays with herbs like dill in their N.A. drinks. I mean, it's really like drinking there started opening my mind up to kind of the possibilities in this category. Um, oh. So go there if you're in
2: New York. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, Julia, in addition to writing and all other things you do, you also have a podcast. Yes. Tell us all about it.
5: So it's called The Lonely Hour. I say it's about loneliness, but it's not a bummer. Um, I mean, I started it, like, I was a freelance writer for the first time in my life, and so I I had afforded myself the possibility of, like, coming up with projects like that, so that's why I had the space to uh, kind of think and execute a show. And what you wanted, like why I started it. Yeah, Uh, yeah. um, I mean, a combination of things, right? Um, Like, this was when I was 33. I was a single woman living in New York. I was looking for partnership, not finding it. And the fact that so many of my friends were dealing with the same thing, like, kind of made me lonely for us all. Like, (laughs) and looking at the, you know, combine that with the way technologies changed the dating game. um, In some ways, like modern romance, romance was looking pretty bleak to me, honestly. Um, So. Like, that was sort of the personal motivation, but I was also, like, reading reports detailing um, our society's increasing sense of social I- uh, isol- isolation. <laughs> um There's talk of a loneliness epidemic, but I think that language might be a little dramatic. Like, I was observing the ways in which technology is distancing us from one another. I saw more and more people freelancing or otherwise working from home. Like, I just wanted to explore what all of that looked like. But if it were for
4: technology, we wouldn't be friends.
2: That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's interesting. people, but, yeah, also,
5: there's some disconnection.
2: Yeah, you're kind of exploring all the different, like, definitions and ways that loneliness exists. It's Mm. like much broader that, uh, what yeah. I've, that's what I've learned I say I'm it. like
5: cataloging people's experiences with loneliness yeah. in hopes of better understanding it and look I'm not dealing with like chronically lonely people um, but I'm dealing with moments of loneliness in people's lives um, and I guess if there's an overarching goal it's that people feel less alone after listening to these other people mm-hmm. talk about it um, sort of neutralizing the taboo around talking about mm-hmm. it because there still is I mean, frankly, when I talk about it at cocktail parties and I say the name of the show, I still get like a little, like I giggle a little bit in defense of it. I need to not do that. I'm the poster girl. I'm, I'm the lonely, loneliness poster girl. <laughs> if I can
4: get it loneliness out of my advocate, mouth, I'm having trouble saying it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If you're the lonely loneliness poster girl, John DeBerry, what are you the poster boy of?
4: Oh God, that's a rough question. <laughs> Ridiculousness?
2: <laughs> Maybe <a> cute sweater. <laughs> 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 yeah. Sweaters. Of good, sweaters. good skincare, skincare that could
4: be skincare, yeah. Cats, cats,
2: yeah, I think so. Um, I want to talk about skincare because it's been like a platform for you lately. Like, a little bit. Tell us your feelings.
4: I have a lot of feelings about skincare. care. Um,
5: exfoliate.
4: Well, yeah. It's like... I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm trying to like... I Did you ever read that piece in The New Yorker? I forgot the name of the, the writer, but about how like skin care, she discovered skin care at like... I don't know, two years ago as like an act of sort of political resistance and mm-hmm. how like the kind of taking care of your physical body is like a way to like feel like there's something to live for. Um, and I really liked that piece and I thought that was really cool, but I have a different approach to it. Like I had acne when I was growing up. I had acne until I started like getting kind of intense about skincare, like cystic acne. That was like extremely painful, like gross that lasted for months. Um, and I was like, fuck this. Like I need to like get my shit together. And this was like maybe three years ago. And I just researched like, what's like the, what are the top interventions you can do for your skin that like dermatologists actually recommend? Like, not like going to like the CVS and getting like Clinique or whatever, but like what is actually like the what you like the thing that people say you should do like dermatologists, and the consensus was like retinol and SPF. Mm-hmm. So skit, so sunscreen I wear every day. It's like kind of annoying, but I do. Uh, <laughs> ho for SPF, um, and do you then retinol. on your hands. I do on the back of my hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not right now because anyway. But yeah,
6: it's
5: uh, raining.
4: Don't forget. Well, actually, okay, so ooh. So (laughs) there's UVA and there's UVB. And it's really easy to remember how they affect you because UVA stands for aging and UVB stands for burning. And UVA can go through glass and clouds. So you still have to wear sunscreen even if it's uh, cloudy or if you're inside in the sun.
5: I retract that statement. But you
4: don't get burned. Okay. So you don't feel it, but it's still doing the cellular damage that is so bad for you. Mm, thank you. And then retinol is vitamin A and it increases cell turnover in your skin. So it makes your skin like a little bit more refreshed and it thins the outer layer of dead dead skin cells. So it helps you if you have acne and clogged pores, they're less clogged. And I started doing it like three years ago and I don't, I haven't had like acne in like, I can't even remember. So That's it incredible. works.
2: Did you ever, did you like change any diet stuff? either like
4: uh no well? but i've recently started doing um so vitamin c is super hot in skincare right now and i'm doing some research on, on it and actually like some evidence suggests it actually doesn't get into your skin and doesn't do anything mm-hmm. topically mm-hmm. so the best way to get it is through your bloodstream which is like through your diet so i started drinking um like lemon water all the time and i'm like really feeling that it's like a skincare thing and it tastes really good and i like it um so, that's, that's like my, my latest like kind of thing.
2: Nice. Um, so, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I definitely want to talk about the nonprofit that you're working on. Um, and then we're going to play some of this game and just chit chat a little bit more. Um, so, we'll be right back with Julia Bainbridge and John DeBerry on HR and Happy Hour. Stay tuned.
4: a super-duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage.
2: Thank you, Roberta's. We are back on HRN Happy Hour. So, John, I want to ask you about the nonprofit that you are working on.
4: Uh, Yeah, so um, I like... I probably... 90% of the people in this room and listening, I had, like, sort of a a meltdown after the election and felt really powerless and felt, like, really, like um like I had been really cocky and like, this sort of relied on, like the general arc of the universe bending towards justice as something that sort of happened as a force of nature rather than through people's direct action um and I went, I went canvassing for Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania, and it did nothing. And like people don't care when you knock on their doors; they just want you to leave. So it's like, what can you actually do to to really make a, like a tangible change on like a sort of smaller level than just like who you vote for for president? Because um, that's just one tiny part of what affects people's lives. Um, and so I was developed this like very intense like texting relationship with a former co- colleague of mine uh, who lives in Seattle now, and we were kind of like what can we it was like on the train to my in-laws for Thanksgiving and we are like what can we do to like increase the political power of restaurant workers uh, and we thought of this idea of starting like kind of a super PAC kind of like a like a fund for like candidates and thought that was a cool idea and like really innovative and I talked to my husband who works for uh, Philanthropy New York which is a regional association of grant makers um, so basically it's like a trade group for philanthropies like uh, Ford Foundation, Carnegie, you know. And he was like, well, that's kind of illegal, but you can do uh, something called the Community Foundation. That's a foundation that's supported by, that's financially supported by the population that they support. So the example of this is the Stonewall Community Foundation uh, in New York, and they do LGBTQIA fundraising, and they give, they give out uh, grants to nonprofits throughout, throughout the country. Um, so I decided to do that. And so we put a board together, and... Uh, my husband has been very helpful because he works in philanthropy, so we got a pro bono lawyer, we got, I got a board together, some former colleagues of mine, some former colleagues of his, um, and we still haven't gotten our 501c3 status yet, so we're still a little bit like in the dark, um, not like in the dark, we're sort of like shadowy, like we're not operating yet because mm-hmm. it's sort of pointless to do any effort around fundraising and advocacy without having that, the ability to take in donations. Um, so but basically what we're hoping to do is to raise money uh, on behalf of restaurant workers and improve their quality of life when it comes to uh, our program areas are pretty broad right now because we want to kind of cast a wide net and see what happens and like how, what are the m- kind of more uh, impactful areas. But right now we're focusing on uh, sort of labor fairness, which is like a huge topic um, and less not just like minimum wage, but also just like the whole spectrum of what it's like to be like financially the the world financial world of of, of restaurant employees Uh, sexual assault gender equity uh, disability accommodations and workplace discrimination um, and mental health and substance abuse Mm -hmm. so uh, it's less about providing a direct service to um to the to the restaurant workers but it's about going to existing nonprofits that, that do work in those areas and saying, hey, restaurant workers are a vulnerable population, can you like why don't we focus on them? So it's about sort of like a my my friend from college who's a who's on our board, it's like she's talking about the, the soft pivot. So it's a, sort of say, hey, if you're a nonprofit in New York who's doing uh, labor fairness work, but not necessarily in restaurant working community, saying, hey, we're gonna give you a grant, you want to work together and try and improve the lives of restaurant workers. Um, and so that's, we're still, I think we're probably maybe like a six months away from kind of launching. Um, but stay tuned because it's awesome. really cool. fun. That's very exciting.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of just curious for both of you, like along the same vein, like do you, obviously, there's been a lot of like bad news coming out in the restaurant industry, especially as far as like gender equality and within the Me Too movement. But um, I would love to know if, if you guys think, obviously, you're doing work on this, but do you see, do you see positive change happening right now or is it like still too early? Is it still feel like we're kind of living through bad revelations?
5: I mean, you hit a, hit a kind of bottom and it can only go up. Right. I mean, yeah. I guess, well, I mean, I guess I, it, it starts with conversations and that's definitely happening. Right. I don't know mm-hmm. if I see many changes happening yet in terms of, how the back of house operates, or like what the restaurant culture is like, but um, moves
4: should be made. I just soon. think it's so, it's so yeah, deeply entrenched, just, and yeah. and the idea of uh, the the workforce, like the like human beings, as sort of being rather expendable, um, is like a very like. It's hard to get around that because it's like very, from a capitalist perspective, it's like very easy just to say, well, you know, like keep wages low and keep revenue high, and that's how we make money, and this is how, how this all works. But like, there's becoming more and more of a awareness that like treating people well is actually good business, and mm-hmm. the restaurant industry has. Astronomical turnover—you know—you're basically expected to to replace your employees at every position like once a year, mm-hmm. and that's extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about like the indirect costs of what you're doing. Um, I just listened to this podcast, the Eater Upsell, this week, mm-hmm. and it was—I I I don't remember her name off the top of my head—but it's the founder of Ovenly,
6: mm-hmm. who I have
4: this like immense girl crush on. And you have to listen to it because it's like she basically figured out that if you treat your people like human beings, then you actually can run a successful business, and you may not be grow astronomically, but it's sustainable.
2: You're changing the way basically you're running your business and that's probably really scary for people up front, yeah. but it pays off. I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I mean, Kelly Fields is stepping up at the John Best restaurant group um, to kind of change the culture there. I mean, I think it still remains to be seen again how that's going to happen, but um,
2: at least she's stepping into that space. That's certainly a group that, <laughs> you know, needs it. Yeah. Um, and, that's, so we'll see. and that's great to see because there's been a big question around do you continue to support these restaurants and restaurant groups where the owner or chef has been, um, you know, it's, it's come out that things are not, we're not done well and are not great, but we have to support everyone else that works at them. Right. And it's great to not only, you know, to be able to see visual, like very visually someone like Kelly stepping up and it's hopefully motivating people that otherwise would say, I'm not going to go to that restaurant. They're like, I have a reason now to go back and visit.
5: Right. And that was Allison Cook in Houston. That was her argument for why she reviewed Aki, Paul Key's restaurant it was mm-hmm. like, well, Paul Key isn't really here day to day. And yeah. the people who are, and who are also doing a beautiful job deserve
2: to be talked about. Definitely. Um, well, this has been really, really fun. And I love that we've hit so many topics, podcasting, skincare, <laughs> sweaters, cats, Atlanta, all the good stuff. Um, Very excited to see what happens with the nonprofit, John. We'll be watching and come back and talk about it whenever you want. Um, So we normally do trivia at the end of our shows. But last time John was on, we made a game out of how awesome his Twitter feed is. So instead of trivia, we're playing... um, Last time it was a JDB tweet or John DeBerry. Uh, sorry. JDB tweet or <laughs> Jack Handy quote.
4: That's a, a little oh. slip there. It's not a Freudian
2: kind. <laughs> I know. Um, so today the choice is JDB tweet or Andy Rooney quote. Ooh. Okay.
4: It's funny because I've, I've, ever since we've done that, my Twitter is JND3001, by the way, if you want to follow <laughs> me. Um, I've, like, had this sort of meta, like, Awareness of like you possibly picking this out for a future version of this game. So now, now that it's someone else, it sort of throws a whole new yes. dimension to it. I'm yeah. Really, now I'm you're really impressed. Your
2: tweets are going to be Andy Rooney-esque.
4: I don't even know what Andy Rooney sounds this like. This is going
2: to be so. Sam put this together, yes. um, and it's this. This one turned out better than I could have expected. Okay. God. So oh
0: I, I don't know Andy Rooney well enough. No. A few minutes.
4: He just, with Andy he just likes to complain.
0: <laughs> it's an old man that complains about. He likes to complain about <laughs> that's, that's me. That's John. <laughs> That was the inspiration. I was looking down your Twitter feed and, like, oh, I think this could be Andy Rooney. Grumble, grumble, I grumble. I
4: get <laughs> it. I get
2: it. Okay. So everyone can play along. Okay. Number one. When those waiters ask me if I want some fresh ground pepper, I ask if they have any aged pepper. John. No. Oh. <laughs> David was the only one that was willing to guess. That was Andy Rooney.
4: I actually wasn't sure if it was me or not. <laughs> that, that sounded too clever. For well to <laughs> that sounded too clever for Andy Rooney. So.
2: Yeah. Well, it was. Okay. Next one. Okay, but if Carrot Top is named Carrot Top, shouldn't his hair be green? JDB. Yes. <laughs> I don't understand angry yoga people.
3: JDB. Yes.
4: I think like I'm, I'm
2: giving like, it away. I'm like, was Andy Rooney uh, run, run around button. when yoga <laughs> was going on? I <laughs> that Yogi. was the giveaway. All right. The average dog is nicer than the average person. Andy Rooney. Yes. It is a human rights violation for someone to have to listen to a cat barfing. <laughs> JDB. Yes. <laughs> the
5: cat. Any cat <laughs> content.
2: <laughs> cat. Dead giveaway. The dullest Olympic sport is curling, whatever curling means. this is a tricky one.
5: I'm going to say Rooney.
2: Yes. I love curling. Ah, It's amazing. You would never say anything bad about curling. I would never say anything bad about curling. All right. I think it says a lot about us as a society that at one point we thought shampoo and conditioner in one combined product would be a good idea. JDB. Yes. <laughs> Am I the only one playing here? Sorry, I'm speaking to you. <laughs> no, you're great. Um, anyone who watches golf on television would enjoy watching the grass grow on the greens. Rooney. Yes.
5: Could have been a use statement, but delivered not in a Rooney
4: way. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't mean enough to be mean. Yeah, it didn't have enough flavor.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You would have said much worse things about (laughs) golfers. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, Uh, second to last. Ah, yes, the poached egg, because who doesn't love turning their eggs into a swirling mass of incoherent boiling nonsense? JDB, I saw that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like the the language you use is just, to me, a little bit more elevated. Okay, last one. I don't like food that's too carefully arranged. It makes me think that the chef is spending too much time arranging and not enough time cooking. If I wanted a picture, I'd buy a painting.
6: Rooney. Andy Rooney.
2: Yep. I like that one, though. That's a good one. Um, that's, that's all of our JDB tweet or Andy Rooney quote. Good one. What will it be next time? What will it be? All right. Well, that's our show. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, John. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you. Um, Come back anytime. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks to the whole HRN crew, our membership coordinator, Hannah Forden, intern Sam Lee, Julia Child Fellow, Sarah Strong, and our engineer, David Tadashore. Um, we're sending our best wishes to Katie that she gets well soon because we've got to go to Charleston next week uh, for Charleston Wine and Food. So we'll be back for, with an episode next week with guests Ed Kimber and Brian Hart Hoffman. Brian is the editor-in-chief of Bake From Scratch magazine, and Ed is the first winner of the Great British Bake Off. He, Ed is also the guest editor for Bake From Scratch's January and February issue that's all about British baking. So tune in next Thursday at 5 p.m. for a conversation about cakes, cookies, breads, and much more. And then make sure... Um, the following weekend, March 2nd through 4th, you're tuning in to Heritage Radio on tour for our coverage of Charleston Wine and Food. You can listen live at heritageradionetwork.org slash listen. And then we'll have a very special episode of HR and Happy Hour on Sunday, March 4th at 4 p.m. live from Charleston Wine and Food with guests Robert Stelling and Jillian Zettler. So tune in for that special episode. We will see you next Thursday. <coughs> HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.
4: Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Schultz, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.